As many of us are confined all around the world, we wanted to provide you with a daily podcast in partnership with Radio Halara, emitting from Palestine. Our ambition for it is not to add to the saturation of information about the pandemic we are currently experiencing, but rather to propose a 15-minute extension of our political imaginaries every day. The concept is very simple. Every day we ask one person the same question. What is for you a moment of true decolonization? The answer can be a historical moment or something they witnessed, something heroic and grandiose or rather discreet and mundane, a durable blow to the structures of colonialism or a short instant of liberation. While we are recording this podcast in privileged conditions of confinement, we keep in our thoughts the multitude of people around the world who do not share similar conditions or have no choice but to risk being affected by the pandemic because of criminal policies that have to do with neoliberalism, carceralism or colonialism. We thank you for listening and wish you and your loved ones the very best wherever you are. Hi everyone, today is the 21st episode of uh, our daily series, A Moment of True Decolonization, and our guest is Chandi Desai on, um, on the suggestion of uh, dear Deb Cohen. Chandi is an assistant professor at the University of Toronto. Her research focuses on anti-colonial practices of resistance against settler colonial capitalist imperialism and genocide, specifically focusing on Palestinian resistance. Chenni is working on a book tentatively titled Revolutionary Circuits of Liberation, The Radical Tradition of Palestinian Cultural Resistance and Internationalism. She recently co-edited a special issue on decolonization and Palestine for the journal Decolonization, Indigeneity, Education and Society. And she has also been involved in the Palestinian Solidarity Organizing for over a decade. Uh, hello, Chenny. Hi, how are you, Leopold? Good, how are you? Uh, okay, given all circumstances, you know. Yeah, I think that's been most of our... That's like that's like the the lucky answer, I suppose. So we're we've all been like okay given the circumstances. Um, great. Well, so as your bio uh, already suggests, uh, you're gonna take us back to Palestine today, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, uh, I'm just gonna kind of go off your question that you uh, offered. You know. Um, as you ask that question, and before I get into the example, I'm just kind of thinking out loud is, you know, my mind swirled in several directions across different geographies uh, because of, you know, where I live. I live in a settler colonial state, which is Canada. I was born and raised in Southern Africa and Zambia uh, during the height of the anti-apartheid struggle. My ancestral ties are to India. Um, and for the past decade, my intellectual and political work focuses on Palestine. And so there's so many things that one can talk about. But um, I think today I want to focus on two examples, one um, from an example from my scholarly work and another example from my activist work. Great. Well, so go, go ahead. It's uh, the, the floor is all yours. Okay, so I think um, for me, um, this idea of anti-colonial, decolonial or decolonial moments is important because I understand or conceptualize decolonization as a process. Um, it's not this one-time moment. Um, and it's a process because 
you know, many tactics and strategies are developed and exercised, especially by the colonized and oppressed to resist the power of colonial and imperialist forces to bring forth uh, social transformation. And so when thinking about various forms of anti-colonial resistance as moments of decolonization, for me, this is important because these moments come to fruition often in either you know, response to the material conditions of colonialism, imperialism, racism, and heteropatriarchy, or it's the colonized way, the colonized or the oppressed people's way of articulating and putting into practice their imaginaries of liberation, self-determination, um, and aspirations of sovereignty, uh, whereby the repatriation of land, self-governance, and the redistribution of power, economic, social, political, are fundamental and although we've seen, you know, neoliberal visions of decolonization, like has been outlined by uh, the Palestinian Authority, I think that there's still some really important um, examples and moments of decolonization that are also inspiring. Um, and so I will offer one example on cultural resistance and decolonization and the second on land defense. So uh, regarding the first, which comes out of research I've been working on, um, you know, as, as many of your listeners might be familiar um, or, or aware, um, Palestinian culture has been one of the sites uh, that Zionist militias pre-1948 um, and post-Israeli state, you know, uh, creation uh, post-1948 have targeted for over 70 years. Um, and since the Nakba um, and onwards, Palestinian material culture and cultural life has been attacked, banned, uh, suppressed, or destroyed for the deliberate erasure of Palestinian history, identity, memory, and the reconfiguration of, of Palestinian land and geography in order for the Zionist uh, settler project to claim that Palestine is theirs. But nevertheless, Palestinians have been resisting, of course, this project for a very, very long time, over a century, um, and the tactic of cultural resistance is sometimes one that, you know, we don't pay as much attention to. Um, and I think specifically the history and the role of Palestinian revolutionary culture producers, of course, we may know the works of specific poets and artists, but, you know, sort of the entirety is, is the entirety is of the, of this history is less sort of talked about or known. Of course, I'm not going to get into that today, but what I do want to mention is Palestinian revolutionary cultural workers, both inside um, occupied Palestine or, you know, within 48 and outside in exile, played a key role in writing Palestinian history back into existence and preserved, you know, their cultural memory um, and collective memory by producing this arsenal of, of, of and body of work. Um, while, of course, this, uh, you know, cultural resistance dates back to the 20s and 30s, its resurgence really took place during the period um, uh, of the era of third world decolonization, you know, in the period of the 50s, 60s, and, um, and then till the, to the 70s and to a little bit into the 80s. And I want to touch on cultural resistance specifically in exile. Um, because again, as I mentioned, you know, earlier, uh, while so much is known about the Palestinian revolution and armed struggle, less is known about the PLO's cultural activities. And what I want to highlight as one example is that these revolutionaries built, you know, cultural institutions. Um, it wasn't just the armed struggle. They were 
you know, um, organizations um, that artists were running um, in which radical arts practices were developed. And through these organizations and institutions, they also established global networks and circuits with other revolutionary culture producers from national liberation struggles and movements across the world in the service uh, of revolution. And it's and this infrastructure was really built during the PLO's presence um, in Lebanon. Now, why I consider their work as part of, of the process of decolonization is because um, because their cultural work, you know, really um, uh, helped sort of decolonize history by refusing to accept colonial and imperialist historiography and narratives about Palestine that was created by, you know, Zionist forces or uh, imperial forces around the world. And so through their art and culture production, they literally rewrote and re-narrated Palestine um, back into history, but also they re-narrated Palestine for the Palestinian collective that was fragmented across geographies and borders. Um, and and also they re-articulated and recreated an aesthetic of who Palestinians were. They weren't just victims or refugees, but rather revolutionaries. And this was especially this re kind of configuration was so important um, during the time of the decolonization era as Palestinians were also trying to mobilize international support for their revolution and struggle. And so what is really important is that revolutionary culture workers, both from inside and outside, uh, participated in international conferences that were taking place in the period of third world in the period of third world decolonization and this was an imperative space for them uh, for example the african the afro asian people solidarity organization apso and their writers conferences was one such space so formed after the banzung conference in 1955 uh, the creation of apso played a really important role and became one of the most vibrant and contentious forms of revolutionary cultural production and the creation of solidarity networks um, and circuits, economic, political, and cultural, within the geography of the decolonizing global south. And, you know, Fanon um, was central and in, in, in involved in APSO as part of the Algerian FLN delegation in 58 and 60. Um, and at one of the conferences, he made a really important speech and spoke to revolutionary culture producers of the world. Um, so it was in 1960 at a conference hosted in Conakry that Fanon um, essentially encouraged in the speech the production of a national culture that betrayed the apparatus of colonialism through the perspective of the wretched of the earth and also to be critical of uh, elite bourgeois. For Fanon, the cultural realm held a central place in reimagining politics as well as a third world anti-imperial front based on transnational and international solidarity and an affirmation of the identities of the Afro-Asian people. And this, this went hand in hand with APSO's cultural policies that advocated for a united cultural front against colonialism and imperialism. And so this influenced so many writers and cultural workers and artists that were involved in national liberation movements across the world as they connected their revolutionary activity to this um, to the production of an anti-colonial aesthetic. And this is where I think Palestinians played a key role in, in this work, right? The writers, the painters, the novelists, the 
um, the, 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 uh, visual artists, the photographers, the, the, the people who were shooting the revolution that were part of the PLO film unit. Um, and so APSO's cultural policies inspired the creation of an Afro-Asian Writers Association and gave rise to numerous conferences and meetings and the publication of poetry and fiction anthologies. And one known well publication is the Lotus magazine, which was actually partly funded by the PLO. Um, and Lotus was also edited by uh, one of, you know, uh, one of the most important Palestinian revolutionary poets, Muin Basiso, um, as well as the renowned uh, Pakistani poet Fez Ahmed Fez. Um, and and in, in this sort of production, also what the PLO ended up doing was it extended asylum and protected so many writers and artists who had resisted governments in their own countries and provided them a home and salaries within the PLO to work with them. And so, you know, Lotus was sort of housed in the PLO offices in Beirut until the Israeli invasion in 1982, and then it uh, it moved the the journal moved to Lo, uh, the the journal moved uh, to Tunisia, and then later, you know, kind of uh, died down, and then it was later research, um, revived. But um, uh, but here, I want to articulate how this. Uh, journal was an important place where, you know, these aesthetics of, of, of the world were being kind of refashioned and articulated. And the funding for this project was so important because these were the ways in which also artists and revolutionaries were communicating um, about their struggles um, through art and literature and poetry and, and different forms uh, of cultural resistance. And so these policies and meetings and conferences were among one of the many influences on Palestinian revolutionary culture workers in the production of what Ghassan Kanafani has termed resistance literature, uh, which enabled them to really push against Western European traditions of knowledge production, um, which in, a, in and of itself can be considered an act of decolonization. Of now, of course, um, that might not be the material form of decolonization in terms of land back. Nevertheless, cultural resistance um, is still important um, because of the ability of the colonized um, way of telling their own history from their own ontology and epistemology um, and the ability to refashion one's image in the global public sphere um, as a way to garner uh, material and political support uh, from other third world nations. And so this is, again, where Palestinian resistance was important. You know, cultural resistance was important is that it, it allowed this, it did this. Um, and especially uh, also the gatherings at international conferences um, became uh, important um, as, a, as a site of, of doing political work because it enabled revolutionaries from different parts of the world to really report back on uh, what was going on in their nations um, but also it enabled them to forge ties with one another uh, based on common principles. And sort of, I digress, but uh, a kind of important note is that at, at the inaugural conference of APSO, um, member nations and delegates fully endorsed the Palestinian cause there um, and its cultural resolutions. And it was here in 1957 and eight that um, a subcommittee was created within the organization that was dedicated to Palestine. And so um, so this is this is really important, right? It's a cultural space that this is happening, um, but at the same time, um, a sort of broader political project is taking place 
um, through this articulation um, and endorsement of the Palestinian cause. Um, what I also want to highlight is during this period, um, the Palestinian revolution adopted an ethos of solidarity um, through which they aligned themselves with the forces of third world internationalism and stood alongside Asian, African and Latin American peoples, uh, what Vijay Prashad calls, you know, the darker nations and races. Um, and they did so through both armed insurgencies and cultural production. And there is a lot written about um, the material support and training that was provided for, by third world liberation struggles to the Palestinian revolution and vice versa, the Palestinian revolution providing that um, to other, you know, um, struggles. Um, but less, less work, you know, is evident on how this happened uh, between cultural production or within the realm of cultural production and between cultural producers. Um, and so one of the examples I want to provide is, is of Mahmoud Darwish, the poet, the Palestinian poet, um, as well as other poets who, you know, wrote poetry and expressed solidarity with third world decolonization struggles and made connection, connections with those movements, even if they were fragmented and at times unable to participate in these conferences. And um, Maha Nasser's brilliant work really, you know, tells us and shows us um, one aspect of this history. Um, and so I, I really want to, again, um, situate and, and remind us that this is why uh, culture can't be, you know, just thought of as sort of a space where people um, express, you know, their, their own individual kinds of politics, but rather it's a, it's a, it's a space in which collective visions um, for another world was actually being crafted and articulated. Um, and also what I want to highlight is vice versa, those that were opposing colonialism and imperialism um, and were seeking national liberation uh, during the area, era of decolonization also expressed their solidarity with Palestine, both through material support and political and cultural solidarity. So it happened both ways. It wasn't just, you know, one way. And we are seeing a resurgence of that ethos of solidarity between Palestine and other geographies, um, whether that's from Brazil to Mexico, Turtle Island, Kashmir to South Africa. Um, we see that happening today. And one of the um, areas of my work is also um, focusing on the work of contemporary hip hop artists or um, spoken word artists. And, you know, in my conversations with um, some of my interlocutors, what became important to um, important was the the ways in which they are also involved in political struggles um, and are using culture as a medium through which they're articulating um, their solidarity with other political movements, right? So be that be that um, with the black struggle in the U.S. or uh, be that um, with um, indigenous struggles for liberation in, in Turtle Island, um, these artists express and articulate the ways in which they um, they they do that work. And so again, um, this kind of cultural resistance has a longer um, history, and that history continues to be um, continued um, and refashioned in ways that are relevant for the times now. And of course, we can't conflate them as the same. There's obviously so much in terms of distinction, and in no way do I try to collapse these histories. But what I want to express is the importance of culture as a space for decolonization and its centrality. So yeah, um, I 
in the interest of time, I do also want to now move on to our second example um, of a decolonizing moment, which is um, related to land defense. Um, while doing some organizing work um, on my most recent trip to Palestine, I had the privilege of meeting Om Ahmed. Om Ahmed is an old woman who lives in this incredible house uh, by the old wall in the city of Akka um, in 48. And her home is one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen um, or visited. Um, and it has an incredible garden and terrace um, which faces the Mediterranean Sea. And it's just one of the most stunning sights to see. And Um, and um Ahmed um, has been living there for over 50 years with her family. Um, and for the past 30 years, the Israeli state has tried to dispossess her from her home. Um, the Israeli government, through the old Akka development company, decided that the house um, uh, should be torn down and demolished because they want to, they want to replace it with a hotel, um, you know, a commercial property that would make a lot of profit um, and bring in tourists. Um, Ahmed has been going through an arduous court battle uh, with lawyers for years, and though she has a copy and a photocopy of the deed to her home, the original papers were stored in the archives of the OADC, um, and that building burned down in 2005. And, and so um, the court does not seem uh, or does not seem to want to deem her papers as valid, um, even though they're aware that, you know, the archives were destroyed in the fires. And so, you know, um, this case of Um Ahmed is a is a representation of a larger uh, project of Israeli um, home demolition and land confiscation that continues, you know, um, today. And there are hundreds of households within 48 that are going through um, a similar sort of battle with the government in terms of their um, uh, of orders, court orders that are trying to evict people from their homes. So over the years, uh, Palestinians, um, as well as solidarity activists, have transformed um, Um Ahmed's house into a site of anti-colonial resistance and land defense. Um, and especially during the time when the eviction order is given or a date is articulated on that order, Um Ahmed's house has been turned into an encampment, specifically the garden and terrace where people literally take shifts to uh, be present there, to sit there, to occupy the space. Um, and, and to make sure they're there around the clock so, you know, um, f- Israeli forces don't just come in um, and evict the family or take over their home. Um, as well, the terrace and the garden has become a really interesting art space, um, again, during these times when um, they have literally, you know, put up a projector and screen films uh, from there. And, you know, artists are able to... Um, have poetry readings there and 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 do mus- musical performances um and have the space be transformed um into also a space of resistance and this to me is you know as i was sa- sort of hearing about the story and also seeing um that work happen i just thought about how this is a really important strategy of land defense um in terms of making sure that you know people are staying steadfast on the land and um, various conditions are provided that enable them to stay on the land, right? Um, and support is provided in terms of people being there um, so nobody can move away from it. Um, and most importantly, there are witnesses there to witness what um, the Israeli forces uh, are doing. 
Um, and we see vibrant examples of land defense across Palestine, across occupied Palestine. I mean, you see it across different towns and villages and um, in different cities in which, you know, um, people are really trying to ensure that they're not evicted from their homes um, and they're not dispossessed from their lands. Um, and we see so many examples, which I can't really get into. But what I want to highlight about this case in particular is defying court orders and injunctions uh, are an, a defiant example of anti-colonial moments of decolonization because what it enables um, the colonized and oppressed to do is to claim and reclaim one's home and land while refusing um, settler modalities of governance, you know, and it's saying, no, like we're not going to be governed by your notion um, or by your laws or by your um practices like we are going to govern ourselves in the ways that you know we will and these are the ways that we're going to defy these orders um and we see this most recently in canada uh when various indigenous nations that were blockading railways and transport infrastructure that that have been refusing the construction of a pipeline that would go through the unceded territories of the witsuitsa nation um essentially decided to burn the court injunctions that were given to them you know, so the police forces brought the court's orders and said, you have to remove these blockades and get off the railway. Um, and they defied those orders and said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to burn this. We don't take this as a serious, um, you know, uh, modality of governance uh, because you're settler colonial state. And, and we're refusing to acknowledge um, that this is this is what you are asking us to do is participate in our own colonization um, and dispossession. And so. You know, these are inspiring examples of land defense, um, you know, from Turtle Island to Palestine that teach us that decolonization is a process. It is inevitable um, and it is something that, you know, people are going to continue to fight for um, and it is only time that will get us there. And so I kind of want to end on that note in which, you know, land defense is such an important strategy materially um, to ensure that, um, you know, people's lives, homes, livelihoods, um, and, um, and, and homes are protected. And, um, and that, and that while there's no, um, decolonization in terms of the settlers leaving or giving land back in the process, there are these moments that, um, enable, uh, colonized and oppressed people to fight back and refuse and say no um, to settler sovereignty and to say that no, we are practicing our own um, means of self-determination even if, it, if it's in this small moment. And so I just want to end by saying once again that decolonization is a process, it's inevitable, and it is only time um, that will get us there. Great. Well, thank you so much, Tenny, and uh, I uh, I think you you managed to cover quite a quite a lot of geographies that uh, this series has been uh, also talking about, and that this and hopefully this series can be a, a humble participation to this imaginary of resistance you were you were just talking about. So I thank Deb Cowan once again for putting us in touch, uh, and and uh, I wish you the very best with uh, your research that I I know is being impeded a bit with uh, the current situation. So yeah, best of luck with with that all. Leopold, I just want to thank you so much um, for the opportunity and um, for the interview. It was such a pleasure um, speaking to you and. Um, Good luck with uh, the rest of the recordings. That's all for today. 
Find us tomorrow again for a new episode as part of this daily podcast series. And if you're a subscriber to The Finalist, remember that you have access to every single article we published in the past in their online version on our website. Thank you very much and take care.